Hello, and welcome to the BookBat podcast, where we discuss Christian fantasy books and the wider fantasy landscape. I'm your co-host, Carlissa J. And I'm the other co-host, Jason. Jason and I have many thoughts and questions about fantasy and Christian media that we like to discuss and ponder together. So for this week's podcast, I'd like to try an experiment to see if we can get some discussions going about the Christian fantasy landscape. I have before me a jar filled with slips of paper. Each slip of paper has a set of questions on it. Jason and I will take turns drawing from the jar and we'll have a discussion around whichever questions we draw. These questions may lead to other questions and we may end up going off on a few tangents or a rant or two. If we still have more questions in the jar after a while of recording, we may continue this experiment in the next episode. And the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that even. Maybe we'll never stop. (laughs) Uh, But before we get into that, a quick writing update. This is a quarterly update, sweetie. A quarterly writing update. Not inherently writing. It's just a general update about what we're doing. Okay. What's going on? Like, obviously, this podcast is something that's still going, and we hope to keep it ongoing, at least for the foreseeable future. Then there's your writing, which involves... Yeah, right now I'm doing some rewrites for my next fantasy book, Davy Jones Aquarium, which should be... The rewrites should be done within the next couple months, but after that will come things like editing. Uh, and I'm currently still doing research for Christian Fantasy 101. And of course, every week that we're not posting a podcast episode, we are posting blogs. Or a blog, rather. Yeah, a blog, sweetie. We have other things we do. <laughs> and we're not like some people who somehow manage to blog every day. How those people do that is beyond me. It's just weird. So, are we ready to get into drawing? Sure thing. I'll tactfully dodge the fact that she did not ask me about anything I'm doing, so that's easy. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, moving on to questions. Do you want to talk about what you're doing? No, that's why we're moving on to questions. Obviously. (laughs) Well, well, well. Who could have seen this question coming? Ooh. Ooh. No, that would be mean. You could try to do an Irish accent? Nah, because I always get the... Those accents mixed up, and the Irish mixes with the Scottish, which mixes with the Australian, which mixes with the New Zealand, and occasionally some British gets thrown in there. And see, it's all fine until the Brits get involved, because every one of those countries I mentioned beforehand don't want to be referenced in the same breath as Britain. <laughs> Maybe I could talk like this. Like Heinz Doofenshmirtz. No. Maybe try a British accent. Oh, for the love of... <laughs> <sighs> Never mind. Just take all the fun out of this. In his article, Different Tastes of Literature, C.S. Lewis wrote, In literature, the characteristics of the consumer of bad art are even easier to define. He or she may want her weekly ration of fiction very badly indeed, may be miserable if denied it, but he never rereads. There is no clear distinction between the literary and the unliterary. It is infallible. Let's dwell on that word for a moment. Infallible. The literary man rereads. Other men simply read. A novel once read to them is like yesterday's newspaper. So, now the question. 
do you think readers of today's Christian fantasy regularly reread these books? I'm assuming you mean fantasy books. Yes. Okay. Sorry, just clarifying. And are there any fantasy books that you've reread or plan to reread? No matter how many times I do this, sweetie, I just reread just isn't a word you can say that often. So I guess I'm answering first. I read the question, so it'd be a little weird if I answered it right away. So in answering, I want to say I have not done enough rereading in my life. C.S. Lewis has convicted me. (laughs) So anyway, there are a couple of books. Like I recently reread Blackguard's Moon by George Ryan Polivka. Um, And I have a list of books. I started George MacDonald's Fantasties again, except I bought an audiobook, so I've been listening to it. Does that make a difference to you? Um, it feels different. How so? Um, I guess there's a feeling of being really, really absorbed when I actually read it physically. There's still absorption, but it's a different kind of absorption when I'm listening to it instead. So would you say that taking in the same story through different means, even if it's just having someone else read it to you as opposed to reading it yourself... Does that really count as rereading it? I think it counts. Comment in this, you know, wherever you get this podcast. Does that count? I'm on the fence on that one. Leaning towards a no, though. I read the Bible over and over. Does that count for something? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's more of a sign that you've been a Christian for a long time than anything else. Sorry, (laughs) sweetie. Asked for the, do you think readers of today's Christian fantasy regularly reread these books? Um, I don't think the market is really set up for creating books that are designed for multiple rereading. It's, no, it's, it's a cycle, okay? And keep, I guess we should have mentioned ahead of time that these are, answers are for more or less our opinions We'll, we will mention any facts, you know, if we have any data or something like that on us or that we remember. But for the most part, these will be just our own observations and stuff like that. So definitely keep that, you know, take what we say with a grain of salt. But no, I think it's more just a cycle thing with the media, period. And books are part and parcel of it. If there's just so much out there. So the idea is after you've gotten the person to consume the product once, there's no reason for them to re-consume it. Mm. Like, and you see that all over the place. Like, I can't tell you how many people will watch, you know, take your pick of a TV show or whatever. And most of them never even think of re-watching it again. It's just, you know, I saw it once. Why would I see it again? You know, ditto with movies, I'd say even. And with books, something that you've got pointed out to you when you were looking into what it would take to actually reliably make money off of publishing books, at least under the old and, well, not so much the old, the current landscape. Although, I don't know, maybe there's a new model we can find that would work better for people like us. But it's all about putting out huge quantities. Mm Mm-hmm. More so than anything else. You yep, put that is the current landscape. You put out huge quantities for people to consume huge quantities. And when that's the mentality, that doesn't breed a space or mentality where it's like, oh, I really found something I like. I'm going to revisit it 
multiple times or at the very least more than once because mm-hmm. yeah like okay so you work in our church library you are the librarian mm-hmm. and our church library gets a lot of donations a lot and i can't help but wonder and a lot of them are, are fiction as well as obviously you get your usual study guides that kind of thing devotionals Take your pick. Mm-hmm. Some end times prophecy about how the world was going to end in 1990 or something like that. <laughs> Those are classic. <laughs> but I can't help but wonder, especially when it comes to fiction, how often were those books just read once? Hmm. And then they just sat on the person's shelf until they decided they didn't want it anymore. You know, usually when they're doing something, you know, like a purge of their house or something like that. And they go, oh, yeah, I don't read that thing at all other than the one time or whatever so then you know in the box it goes and next you know it's at the church library Hmm. hence the countless amish romance or other forms of historical romance yeah they are endless there's a lot of it yeah they're like the zombie hordes in a video game (laughs) they just keep coming and they never stop it's horrible. Somebody <laughs> else made that comparison, obviously, for the... I've mentioned it before. The Wait, book what? that I never plan on reading that some people really like. The... What is it? Uh, Amish Zombies on Mars. I don't remember who the author is. Hey, that's a great title. Okay, <laughs> you can sell it on the, that title because at the very least, people are going to do a double take going, Wait, what? <laughs> oh, Amish hmm. Vampires on Mars. No, that's what it was. Eh, still, the title grabs your attention. It's like, what? <laughs> Anywho... Um, so for me, I'm a perpetual rereader. The flip side is, is that like, if you were to compare me and Carlissa, she's definitely read a lot more books, like in terms of different titles that she's read. Whereas when I find a book that I like, I reread the heck out of it. Like here's a good point of reference is Brian Jake's Redwall series. That is a series of 22 books. It's not all one giant story. They're all separate stories. But with the exception of the first one that he published, the self-titled Red Wall, I've read all the other 21 books in that series a minimum. I'm going to save at least five times. At least. <laughs> and that's that's just part of who I am. I When I find something I like, I tend to reread the heck out of it. Whereas, yeah, I'd say in today's book culture it you're only rereading a book if it's like a historical research paper or something like that you know you're not doing it for a fantasy story it's like nope got the story once don't need to come back to it Mm. so moving on oh no wait oh we never asked the question are there any books we are planning on rereading yeah i'm going to read till we have faces by c.s lewis and out of the silent planet by C.S. Lewis. Reread Again. those books. Reread those books, yes. Okay. Because I was like, I thought you had finished those, you know, till we have faces. <laughs> I want to read it again. Yeah. You definitely made it sound interesting enough that I might pick it up at some point. Mm-hmm. Although it doesn't sound like something I can skim through. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's the other thing mm-hmm. is that a lot of today's books I found, you can actually skim through them. And still get like 90% of the plot and everything like that. And you actually didn't miss much. Whereas, yeah, you got me reading 
uh, Tolkien's Children of Hurin, and it's, you know, just, I've only read the first chapter so far, and one thing that just hit me all over again is it's like, oh, wow, there is so much packed in here that even though it may not all be central to the plot, I can't really just skim over it because I have the feeling if I skim over it, there's a very real chance I will miss something that the book will assume I would know later. Mm-hmm. And books I plan on rereading, Timothy Zahn's Inheritance of the Empire, I believe is what it's called. Mm, yeah, I want to reread that too. Great trilogy. I love those books. I really want to get some of Zahn's other older Star Wars books too. Not his more recent? No, I want to get some of his older ones. Back before Disney, he set an established timeline. Back when mm. the writer set the timeline. Before the prequels and the sequels. So basically before Star Wars got messed up by everyone except for Dave Filoni. All right. Should I draw one? Sure. Why not? Okay. All right. Yep. You're reading that one. Yeah. I am not reading that. Okay. Do we need more thoughtful influences shaping Christian fantasy authors? C.S. Lewis read widely and studied medieval literature. J.R.R. Tolkien studied classic literature. Madeline Engel read theoretical physics from Albert Einstein and others. Each of them thought deeply about spiritual matters, drawing on George MacDonald, or in Tolkien's case, Catholic tradition. Does that level of academic rigor or spiritual maturity still exist in Christian fantasy, and how would we cultivate it today, or encourage it? First of all, I'll answer the question, does it exist? Ahem. Let me think about that. Mm, no. I want to say that somewhere out there, actually this is something I've been thinking about, that makes me a little bit sad. I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere out there there is somebody like that who's uh, who's writing fantasy, who's Christian, devoted to Christian values, but we don't know about them because they did something to offend somebody in evangelical <laughs> circles, so they have been silenced, and we will never hear about them, or yeah. ignored, and we will never hear about them. Yeah, it's kind of impressive, actually, now that I think of it, that you actually heard about Gene Wolfe in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because that's a case where you won't find Gene Wolfe's books on your Christian bookstore shelves. Larger. And, and I can see why. No, but the main reason why, I would argue, isn't because of the content of the books. You don't think so? No. Oh, it's because he was... Catholic. He was Catholic. And a lot of those quote-unquote Christian bookstores are aimed at evangelicals who, for whatever reason, the reasoning still escapes me, assume that anything that has to do with Basically, Catholics, that unspoken C word that you don't want to say out loud. I don't know. I think I can see the content being a problem for people. No, and... I'm not denying that aspect, sweetie. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that I think a lot of it has, it never got a chance out of the gate because of his Catholic faith. <laughs> but I would say things like C.S. Lewis wrote more than the Chronicles of Narnia. But after that one movie review you read where the reviewer really focused in on oh this has elements of pagan oh for Shazam, pagan gods Shazam for King- Fury of the Gods yeah. yeah and it's like this this will keep this may keep Christian viewers away it's like C.S. Lewis wrote till we have faces it has a lot of talk of pagan mythology and drawing from that he draws from pagan mythology mm-hmm. in virtually every single one of his books including the chronicles of narnia i'd argue yeah but there's a lot of talk of the gods and stuff like that and i mean it's still a really thoughtful it's very much c.s lewis but that 
But that's the other thing, sweetie. And that, this is something I have to say. Like, and focusing specifically on Tolkien, Lewis, and La Angle is that they were both what we would probably call today intellectuals. Like literary intellectuals, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Well, well kind of like philosophers, Tolkien really. and Lewis were more literary. Uh, La Engel was more mix of science and stuff like that. But still, sweetie, I'd say that the fact that they actually had a higher degree of learning in their in specific fields, that greatly enhanced what they did. So you mm-hmm. get a lot of the philosophy and stuff in Tolkien and Lewis's books and that comes from their study of whether it's uh, Tolkien with Catholic cr- traditions or I, what was what was the mythology that Tolkien really drew on? He really enjoyed Norse mythology yeah. and Viking sagas. Were... Yeah, and he drew on that one a lot, if I recall correctly, for mm-hmm. his books. And Lewis was really into like Irish, Scottish folklore. Oh, maybe. I I know he was was. really into medieval. Which would include that, I guess. Like outside of Christian circles where he's known for apologetics or fantasy reader circles where he's known for the Chronicles of Narnia. Apparently he wrote some very uh, noteworthy papers on medieval literature that he would be known for in that field. Well, and that's the thing is that these writers weren't writing fantasy books for a living. Mm, I'd say that's the other thing that helps encourage it because... Here's the bottom line, and this is with anything that's a money-making industry, is you start to, you formulate it, you know, you try to figure out, okay, this is how, this is what sells, this is the most efficient way to make it quickly, so that way I can pump more out, therefore make more money. Mm. And that's a problem with most fantasy books, period, today. Forget, you know, let alone Christian fantasies that... It's formulaic. You know what, you know, due to market research and all this other data that's out there, you've got a very good idea of what's going to sell, what's not, what notes you need to hit, etc. And that's it. It's become more about making money and what will sell than anything else, which is why personally, just in terms of even having more thoughtful Christian fantasy, period, I think that's going to come from people who are more like you, Carlissa, who've published fantasy books who aren't in this to make money. Yeah, somebody who's in some other field. Well, and that was the other thing that I forgot to mention is that Tolkien, Lewis, and Let Engel aren't writing fantasy for a living. They all have other professions. I don't remember what Let Engel's profession was. Uh, But I know, yeah, Tolkien was a, I forget the term they used back then, but nowadays they call it comparative linguistics. He studied comparative linguistics. Um, And Lewis taught English for a bit, but yeah, like the height of his career was a medieval scholar. Yeah, you know, that's the thing is that I think a lot of people don't take into account is that guys like Lewis and Tolkien definitely didn't follow a modern model in terms of how to be successful at this yeah tolkien only published like four fantasy novels in his lifetime so basically you're telling me that his son put out more books in his dad's name than his dad actually did yeah because you know tolkien J.R. tolkien did a lot of writing notes and stuff but he never felt that it was perfected enough to actually publish it whereas Mm. christopher just took all his notes and arranged them and published the books that <laughs> J.R. Tolkien was hesitant to publish. Um, so how would we cultivate a more 
I don't know if we can exactly cultivate an acad- a more academic approach uh, or academic maturity, you put it, for writing. I don't know if we can totally get there because a lot of people, you know, that actually put in the work to be- become academic literaries are quite often doing something else mm-hmm. with that. They're not writing fantasy novels. <laughs> They're writing research papers or whatever. Things that, frankly, probably have higher probability of selling or getting funding for. Um, but Variably. Spiritual maturity. That's one that actually I've fought with a lot. Because to me, one sign of sort of a spiritual maturity is the willingness to wrestle with tough questions that don't have a cut and dry answer. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing, like, you look at stuff that, um, you know, as much as we like to simplify Lewis and Tolkien stuff into, oh, it's simply good versus evil, you know, it focuses on these themes or whatever. It's like, no, they actually wrestled with some pretty complicated and complex stuff. Lewis, at least for the most part, it was more famous for it than Tolkien was, certainly. But Lewis, for the most part, didn't actually, especially when it came to his fantasy books, didn't tell the audience that this was definitively the way it was. He was able to kind of like go, this could be the way it is. He really emphasized that in The Great Divorce, for example, by making it all end up being a dream at the end. So that you get... Seriously? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So that it's like... I thought that came from it... those video games... Those... Zelda video games or what was that Mario 3 no that's an old thing like Fantasties at the end turns out to be possibly a dream it's kind of left ambiguous Ooh. if I remember correctly like Inception <laughs> before Inception there was fantasies <laughs> if I remember correctly anyway oh I had something else I wanted to say and I forgot oh I did want to mention something that George MacDonald once said, uh, and I'm not going to get the quote quite right, but it's something along the lines of emulation and greed are driven by the same spiritual motivations. Uh, You want to unpack that a little bit? I'm not getting that Um, one, really. So basically, and he said a couple other things about emulation, but the sense that when we're trying to copy what other people have found success in, that it's spiritually the same as being greedy so would you argue there's a lot of greed going around i could i can see his point like especially when it's something that makes money Mm -hmm. but i would also counter that with emulating is a good way to learn something Mm. so i can't condemn emulation entirely but at the same time especially when it comes to these more artistic things where there aren't absolute you know rules you know, math is math. You know, I'm sure some mathematicians will kill me for saying that, but that's what it is. There are rules to math. Whereas with literary stuff, in part due to the fact that language changes, the way we present it changes, yada, yada, yada. It's so fluid that I think we do ourselves a creative disservice by just being in a state of constantly, here's what works, let's emulate that. Mm. Yeah. I don't think we ever really answered the question of how we would cultivate it, did we? Is there really an answer? Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Just the way the book market is set up right now, it doesn't encourage authors to get into other studies or anything like that. It's You want to take up all their time writing books. (laughs) Yeah, pump out as much as you can. Yeah. Hope something sticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I'm not sure what you do about that. Well, there's one way you could get around it. Nobody would like it, though. What? Take all the money out of it. Mm -hmm. Because then you'd only have people who actually really like doing it and... I don't know, considering how little money most authors make anyways, probably is mostly still people who enjoy doing it. Percentage-wise, I would agree with that, but here's the thing. It's that very small percent that you find readily at your Christian bookstore. Unless you know where to look, that's why a lot of these authors who may indeed be more thoughtful and more able to wrestle with tougher questions and themes in their books without providing the audience a cut and dry answer that uh, the Christian market seems to demand at all times, they just for the most part go unfound because one needs to know where to look. I'm still of the opinion that they probably offended somebody and got well, their books. Well then, sweetie, who did you offend? Hmm? Oh, no, I'm just, I haven't put a lot of effort into marketing. Yeah, that's also true. But that's probably my main problem. Well, sweetie, and also I would say your the other thing is that your books don't really fit in the formula of what gets readily marketed at, you know, Christian bookstores and such. But that's another subject. All right. We'll do one more question and do that one quick. Okay. Oh, do it quick. Okay. Oh, quick er. Let's hope this is a quick question then. Okay. Oh, for the love of Pete. <laughs> it can be quickish. Oh no. Why this one? Ugh, I want to redo. <clears throat> the Wingfeather Saga is full of oddly aggressive, predatory animals, which raises the question, why does fantasy tend to focus on dangerous animals that want to eat humans? In real life, animals that kill via disease, like mosquitoes, use venom for self-defense, like scorpions, and territorial herbivores, like hippos, cause more deaths. Are people misinformed? Are predators just more exciting? Yes, they are more exciting. Have you not seen the Jurassic Park movies? <laughs> they don't focus on the big, big nice plant-eating dinosaurs that leave the humans alone. They focus on the ones with the big, sharp teeth. I, I was wondering if, if maybe it's a little too depressing. Like, if there's a predator trying to eat a human, it's like this exciting thrill of what will they do to our smarter and stuff like that. Whereas or somebody gets bitten yeah. by a disease-carrying insect, it's like <laughs> they slowly die of disease. Wow, that's kind of depressing. Or they get stung. Every now and then, there'll be stories where somebody gets stung or bitten by something very poisonous, and they slowly start to die. And it more meant to make the mood sad whereas predators add this thrilling mood kind of thing but what about territorial herbivores like hippos and maybe people getting attacked by moose or something like that mm, that is true that moose. sort of thing happens yep that is very true that is very true speaking from personal experience those moose they give you a look and it's like i'm backing away right now yep just and hearing stories away. of from people who live where hippos live, it's like terrifying. And seeing people's scars and stuff from surviving hippo attacks, it's like <laughs> they were so terrifying scars. Well, have you seen the teeth on those things? Yeah. Like, jeez. Um, but like, why don't we have more of that in stories? I think that's... It's just easier to feel that the predator is a villain. <laughs> well, there's that. But also, here's the other thing that tends to be missing in Christian fantasy, especially nuance. 
because nuance means you actually have to inform the audience, which takes time and effort, and most people can't be bothered with that. Oh, so it's just like... Make a blanket statement. We need an animal to attack a person. It's a predator trying to eat them. That's really quick and simple. Exactly. (laughs) You know, that'd be like if, say, in Tolkien... And, okay, like, we'll use uh, the wargs in Tolkien's Middle-earth, okay? Mm. Hey, those giant, rideable wolf hyena thingies. Well, they're all vicious predators, obviously. And Tolkien left them like that because the second that you leave it up to, they're not predatory by nature or something like that. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, geez, now you have to give an explanation as to why specific ones are predatory and why other ones aren't. What <laughs> but might I don't trigger feel them, like what it... might not. Okay, I want to say there are certain series that seem to go overboard on this. The Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson went overboard on predators. And Star Wars, I would say, generally doesn't have enough animal diversity. It has plenty of animal diversity. I mean, it has little cute critters sometimes. The thing is, is that Star Wars animal diversity, the thing is, is that the more peaceful animals they are all there the thing is is that they're all in the background they're hovering they are there if you (laughs) care to look but the problem is is that they're not the ones that cause conflicts for the people you are following to overcome or whatever yeah but how often do they have to overcome the conflict of like a poisonous animal that's just trying to defend itself or a herbivore that's trying to defend its territory well you never know oh some of those animals could be herbivores by nature just highly aggressive just, no just highly aggressive ones like hippos i don't know they just all generally seem treated as predators eh, that is true okay i guess we answered that question <laughs> that's gonna wrap it up for this one uh be sure to like and comment on this podcast wherever you get it um it really helps other people find it subscribe if you get it off of itunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it these days. And yeah, uh, you can follow us at book-bat.com. And you can follow Carlissa on Facebook. Is it BookBat on Facebook no, now? it's BookBat. Okay, that's good. But yeah, no, the primary source for, to keep up with us will be through the website. We'll see you next time as we answer more questions from the jar. <laughs> Bye. Bye.